We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall never surrender. Hi there. My name is Joe Campo. I'm a professor of history, and this is the Harvest the Mars podcast, where we will explore the history of warfare. For this episode, I just read Andrew Roberts' recent biography of Napoleon Bonaparte, and I was impressed enough that I think it's worth examining in some detail. And a podcast on the French general and eventual emperor was a bit overdue, as I've gone 10 episodes without ever giving anything more than a passing mention about someone who is arguably the greatest military commander in history. My biggest takeaway from the book is that our grasp of historical understanding is frighteningly very tentative. I was trained as a historian in Germany, so my expertise in Napoleon is mostly in the context of the noted German historian Thomas Nipperdy's landmark first sentence of his great history of modern Germany. In the beginning was Napoleon. So while I could do an entire podcast on the economic, political, and cultural impact the emperor of the French had on the German-speaking lands, I am not an expert in French history, and thus reliant on secondary sources in hearsay when it comes to the actual historical figure of Napoleon Bonaparte. And Roberts does an excellent job showing just how flawed and biased so many of our collective memories of Napoleon have been. British wartime propaganda, French royalists, and a long list of decades-long questionable reminiscences from people looking to pay rent, get a job in a Bourbon regime, and settle old scores have become intertwined with the historical record. What impressed me most about Roberts was his diligence in investigating whether or not the word is some random 19th century former Paris civil servant that has been taken true for generations is a reliable source. Roberts also noted that only two-thirds of Napoleon's very extensive collection of letters has ever made it into the historiography. That's a huge chunk that has been omitted and ignored. Non-experts have only been given part of the story, especially in recent years. That's a part that too neatly coincides with the agenda of those claiming Napoleon was a tyrant and a warmonger. The book asks a very revealing question. If Napoleon was such a warmonger, why was war declared on him twice as many times as the other way around? To give a personal example, the first time I remember hearing the name Napoleon was as a kid watching an HBO show on Nostradamus called The Man Who Saw Tomorrow in the early 1980s. Napoleon was presented as one of three antichrists, tyrannical leaders that would bring about a reign of terror and untold destruction. Hitler was supposedly the second, and what really worried me as a kid, the third had not yet appeared. Hitler casts a long shadow on German history, and so it's not surprising that it obscures Napoleon. As British historian David G. Chandler noted about comparing the two, nothing could be more degrading to Napoleon and more flattering to Hitler. The comparison is odious. 
On the whole, Napoleon was inspired by a noble dream, wholly dissimilar from Hitler's new order. Napoleon left great and lasting testimonies to his genius in codes of law and national identities which survive to the present day. Adolf Hitler left nothing but destruction. Roberts's biography was a refreshing read because it revealed the historical human being. Napoleon talked about opening a girls' school for orphans right before a battle. He read the latest scientific dissertations for leisure. He spent hours discussing classical literature with the famous German poet Goethe. And while exiled on St. Helena, he became friends with a young girl who shared in funny conversations due to his playful nature. If Napoleon was such a tyrant, why did so many intelligent and liberally minded Britons visit him? The Hitler comparisons come from people who find intellectual comfort in oversimplifications and stereotypical portrayals of history. And let's get the most famous fact about Napoleon out of the way right now. For that future trivia night, Napoleon was not short. He was about 5'7", which was about as average as it gets in late 18th century France. Interestingly enough, while I came away more impressed with Napoleon as a man and a genuine product of the Enlightenment, I became less so of him as a military commander. I think this is a sign of the quality of the book. Roberts definitely gives Napoleon the benefit of the doubt in quite a few of his perspectives. Yet the content of the book, the sources he uses, any objective presentation of facts allow critical readers to come to their own informed conclusions. In short, I think both the caricature of Napoleon as a tyrant and the image of a legendary general have obscured a more complicated historical story. I should note here that although I am more critical in my assessment of Napoleon as a commander, that does not mean he was anything short of a military genius. According to Roberts, he fought 60 battles and won 53 of them, quite a few in which he was outnumbered. That is both an insane number of battlefield victories, probably the most in human history, and a ridiculously high winning percentage. There have been some detractors who have argued Napoleon was the beneficiary of the French revolutionary state that was committed to total war and other improvements that were devised by reformers that came before him. Not wrong, but this is just nitpicking. How would those critics answer why it was Napoleon's army in Italy constantly defeated a larger and more experienced Austrian army Whereas the French Army of the Rhine, which Paris saw as more important and got the lion's share of support, floundered in its offenses into southern Germany. To say that the Army of Italy's sudden stroke of good fortune was due to anything other than Napoleon is just wrong. To take another example, it is inconceivable that even a good general could replicate Napoleon's brilliant maneuvering during the 1805 Austrian campaign that culminated in his tactical masterpiece at Austerlitz. So let me just preface the rest of this podcast by saying that in my estimate, Napoleon was unquestionably S-tier and has a legit argument for being one of the three best military commanders who has ever lived. Caesar, 
Khalid, Alexander, Subutai, Marlborough, Napoleon is absolutely in the same class. Being critical doesn't mean just finding fault. It's also being able to understand merit and put that in context. Maybe a better way of framing my critique of Napoleon is that he reveals the limitations of what great military commanders can accomplish. They invariably make mistakes. They are subject to circumstances beyond their control. They are utterly dependent on healthy, fed, and well-supplied soldiers. And the brilliance they bring to the battlefield can be negated by a competent and disciplined enemy. There is only so far military genius can go. With Napoleon, it enabled a second surviving son of an impoverished minor nobleman from an obscure island to redefine the art of leadership, dominate a continent, and hand down laws that have lasted centuries. But that same genius was limited by mundane considerations such as logistics and entropy could not overcome the superior hostile forces arrayed against him, and could not always be conjured when under pressure and thus failed him at critical moments, all of which eventually led to his downfall. He was at the same time an example of the importance of personality in history and a cautionary tale for those people who rely too much on the proverbial great person. Napoleon was born on a Mediterranean island of Corsica in 1769, which at that time was only recently acquired by France. His ancestry was more Italian than anything, such that my Sicilian grandfather would have called him by his birth name, Napoleone Bonaparte. This has given rise to the popular question in history whether he was a Corsican nationalist or a French nationalist. Such a question reveals the black-and-white, single-committed perspective that dogs the discipline. History is dynamic, and our conceptions change over time. In his youth, Napoleon idolized the Corsican nationalist Pascal Paoli and was picked on for his deep accent while attending school in France. Okay, seems easy. He was Corsican. But Napoleon also strongly believed in the ideals of the French Revolution. By his 20s, what it meant to be Corsican or French had changed. Paoli had by then invited the British Royal Navy to Corsica, and France was home to the Revolution. So to be Corsican, it meant abandoning the Revolution and selling yourself out to the British. So, <laughs> when he became first consul in 1799, Napoleon definitely saw himself as French. What struck me most about Napoleon's early life was his intelligence and the sheer number of books that he read in topics ranging from poetry, the sciences, and history. For his whole life, he could often be found reading a book at night or even on campaign. It's hard to reconcile the stereotype of a megalomaniacal tyrant with someone who read the Scottish poet James McPherson's Ossian or Goethe's tragic romantic novel so many times his book's bindings came apart. He probably was the smartest person in most rooms he was ever in, yet was wise enough to ask questions and seek counsel. He was never impressive physically, and he never did quite master the French language. 
His rise to historical greatness was on account of his talent, and that was not just restricted in the military sphere. Napoleon graduated from his French military academy as an artillery officer, something he took great pride in as the artillery arm took brains and a deep understanding of mathematics. One of the features of Napoleonic warfare was the massive increased use of artillery. Napoleon's army in Italy in 1796 had about 50 cannons. At Leipzig in 1813, he had over 700. In this case, Napoleon was following in the footsteps of others. Before he arrived on the historical stage, cannon manufacture had improved and reformers since the Seven Years' War had already been thinking of new tactics. However, Napoleon proved on the battlefield he was able to maximize the potential cannons offered, particularly in concentrating a mobile artillery to a decisive point and break the enemy's defenses. Napoleon was made general at age 24, without question a very young age, although not unusual in revolutionary France under the radical Jacobin, which Napoleon was a supporter. He had shown himself very able in using his artillery and driving the British out of Toulon, shown himself very brave in manning the guns while getting shot at, a trait he would demonstrate throughout his career where he's often put himself in danger, and showed himself a man of action willing to defend the revolution and using cannon in the streets of Paris to defend it against royalists who had declared a rebellion. Here's a fact that might win you a trivia night. It was not Napoleon who said he used a whiff of grape shot to defeat the royalist mob. That was an invention by the Scottish essayist Thomas Carlyle. Under Europe's old regime, that privileged family name, Napoleon maybe would have been a captain. In revolutionary France that opened careers up to talent, he was given command of the army of Italy. Napoleon's Italian campaign in 1796 is perhaps the best example of the difference between an army commanded by a genius who was esteemed by his troops and one is commanded by what in sports would be called a replacement level general. That is, any mediocre general who are a dime a dozen. The army of Italy was the red-headed stepchild as the lion's share of Paris's attention and resources went to the Rhine and the Low Countries. Some histories have exaggerated the difficulties that the army had before Napoleon got there, but there is no question the army lacked basic supplies such as shoes, it knew it was outnumbered by the Allied coalition, and its soldiers did not feel a purpose other than just being there. The youthful Napoleon made an immediate impression with his energy and taking the complaints of his officers and men seriously. He listened. He got them shoes. He devised a plan for attacking the larger enemy, and he built what the French call an esprit de corps, which roughly translates to spirit of the army, meaning a strong feeling of pride, honor, and purpose in a group. Napoleon was a hard worker. He was an inspirational commander of troops, and he understood that the best way to counter an enemy's superior numbers is to attack. The effect of his arrival was that an army numbering 49,000 that had been previously contained on France's southern border 
went on the offensive against the 80,000 Piedmontese and Austrian troops and won a string of victories that brought it within striking distance of Vienna, which knocked Austria out of the war. There were three constants that explain how the French general was so effective. First was his use of the strategy of the central position. What this means is that he opted to remain in between opposing forces, in effect splitting them in two, thus enabling him to strike and defeat them in detail before they coalesced. This was incredibly risky, because if those two enemy armies were ever able to coordinate, he'd be squished like a grape in between them. Napoleon was able to pull this off because by attacking and retaining the initiative, he made the enemy dance to his tune and react to what he was doing. Most importantly, and this is the second feature of Napoleon's generalship, was that when Napoleon did move, he did so at a speed that surprised his enemies and often caught them off balance. He was once supposed to have said, Go, sir, gallop, and don't forget that the world was made in six days. You can ask me for anything but not time. Speed of movement allowed his outnumbered forces to be temporarily stronger at the crucial point. The third characteristic of Napoleon's leadership in Italy was his ability to inspire his troops. He once remarked, In war, morale factors count for three quarters of the whole. Relative material strength only accounts for one quarter. Soldiers at the front know the deal. They know when their officers are cowards. They are notoriously impatient with moral lectures and generally do not respond to propaganda as they are constantly on the verge of exhaustion because their lives are threatened on any given day. Napoleon was able to personally connect with his troops because he shared the dangers that they faced, made it a point to speak to the rank of file, and convince them that they were making history. A popular story goes that rather than just ordering his troops to cross a crucial bridge during the Battle of Lodi, Napoleon personally positioned a cannon under enemy fire, prompting his troops to call him the Little Corporal for his grimy uniform and doing the grunt work associated with that rank. The story may be a fable or it may be true. Whatever the case, it does embody the historical fact that Napoleon led by example and inspired his troops to overcome an experienced enemy who outnumbered them. Napoleon's Italian campaign was a remarkable reversal of fortune and a clear example of the impact on history a military genius can have. 18 months earlier, revolutionary France had not even been able to knock out Piedmont, Napoleon was an unemployed general writing essays on suicide, and the Austrians were masters of Italy. If Napoleon's 1796 campaign in Italy revealed how much of a difference maker an excellent commander was, conveniently, Napoleon's next campaign in 1798 that took him to Egypt reveals the limits brilliance was bounded by. Geniuses still make mistakes have blind spots, and are subject to forces beyond their control. Napoleon never understood naval warfare or the importance of sea power. 
This is not surprising as historically France and the Franks before it have always been a land power. The British Royal Navy had built up a proud tradition over the centuries with excellent ships and skilled crews. Even if outnumbered, which the British were at its signature victory in Trafalgar that destroyed any dreams of France invading England, British seamanship and gunnery could be counted on to consistently defeat the French Navy. Nevertheless, Napoleon felt he could bring and maintain a French army across the Mediterranean into Egypt as an indirect way of weakening Britain's emerging global empire. This was delusional. Wherever there was water, there was the Royal Navy. Even if he got lucky and evaded the Royal Navy to get to Egypt, which he did, supplying and reinforcing that army was not sustainable. The Egyptian campaign violated one of his own maxims. An army which cannot be reinforced is already defeated. Napoleon's Egyptian campaign also revealed that he was a product of the Enlightenment. Accompanying his army were 150 scientists, engineers, artists, and academics who were to study everything about an ancient land that everybody had heard of but knew little about. On this front, the expedition was a success. The most famous discovery was the Rosetta Stone that eventually served as a means to translate hieroglyphics. Napoleon himself was also keenly interested in discussing Islam and philosophies with local scholars of the Quran. With respect to religion, Napoleon always held an Enlightenment skepticism of it. He saw it and judged it always in a practical sense. That he nevertheless endeavored to read and understand the Old Testament, the New Testament, and the Quran close enough to have in-depth conversations about them indicates his curiosity, his value of intellectual pursuits, and a belief he can better himself for doing so are quintessential Enlightenment ideals. Militarily, once on dry land, Napoleon was able to defeat Egypt's Mamluk rulers. But his position became dicey once the Royal Navy under Horatio Nelson destroyed the French fleet. Although in control of Egypt, he faced constant threat from Ottoman forces who could attack from the desert or invade from the sea with the assistance of the Royal Navy. In typical Bonapartist fashion, he sought to solve this dilemma by attack. He would march his army across the desert against the Ottomans and force a favorable peace, much as he did in Italy. But unlike Italy, the route meant capturing coastal towns that could be supplied and reinforced from the sea by the Royal Navy. As a lover of the classics, Napoleon surely knew of the Athenian general Themistocles' proclamation that he who controls the sea controls everything. Here is an ideal example when considering the limitations of military genius. Napoleon knew he was taking a big risk. He didn't undertake it because of an inflated ego or megalomania. He had consulted with his generals, and all except one agreed that an offensive into Syria was the best of the unfavorable options open to a French force cut off from reinforcement and faced invasion on multiple fronts. 
Napoleon felt compelled to undertake this operation because he was in a losing position. Genius cannot save a general from making what they know is a bad choice, only mitigate the dangers. In the event, Napoleon was met with his first significant defeat at Accra, where British ships sank his siege train and helped the steadfast Ottoman defenders. Even though Napoleon was successfully able to withdraw to Egypt and defeat an Ottoman invasion, he knew that cut off from France, it was only a matter of time before the French position in Egypt would end. Additionally, the revolution itself was under threat, as the Austrians had retaken Italy in his absence. So, he resolved to return to France and once again got lucky in avoiding the Royal Navy. As far as the French position in Egypt, there was nothing that Napoleon's genius or France could do because it was cut off. And a couple of years later, in 1801, it had to surrender to the British. Back in France by autumn 1799, we have the classic conditions of a coup d'etat, a bad government, a popular war hero, and the enemy at the gates. Oddly, even though this should have been easy, the immensely talented Napoleon, who had and would master far more precarious crises, lost his nerve. It was only by the intervention of his brother, the scheming of professional backstabbers like Talleyrand, and the initiative of General Morat that the coup succeeded and Napoleon was put at the head of the government in a position known as the First Council. Even geniuses have bad moments and do not triumph on their own. Although this is a classic example of why civilian leaders ought to fear the popular war hero, listen to my podcast, War and Cosmology, if you want to know more about the subject. The prime mover of this coup was the civilian Abbe C.S., a champion of the 1789 revolution. C.S. had originally planned to have Napoleon play a subordinate role as the military arm of a new regime. But Bonaparte's charisma and fame quickly decided the issue. Following the example of the old Roman consuls, in 1800, Napoleon led an army to retake Italy from an unexpected direction, over the Alps, retracing the steps of Hannibal. Now that he was in his element on dry land away from the Royal Navy, we return to the circumstances of 1796 in which military genius was a difference maker, this time at the Battle of Marengo. A story goes that during the preparation for the campaign, Napoleon peered over a map of northern Italy and asked his cartographer where the decisive battle would be fought. How the devil would I know? came the reply. Why, look here, said Napoleon, pointing to Marengo, explaining how he thought the Austrians would maneuver once he had crossed the Alps. Although he was prophetic in this regard, the battle actually started off poorly for Napoleon as he was taken off guard by the Austrians, who had some 28,000 men and nearly 100 cannon to only half that many French defenders and 15 guns. By mid-afternoon, the Austrian advance seemed so irresistible that their commander actually assumed the battle was won and left, trusting his subordinates could mop up. But the French troops showed iron discipline in maintaining itself, 
allowing Napoleon the time to read the situation correctly and recall some reinforcements that arrived at the proverbial nick of time. A decisive counterattack decimated the Austrians who suffered some 14,000 casualties. An important hallmark of military genius is the ability to recover from a mistake. This is precisely what Napoleon did at Marengo. It wasn't just good fortune that reinforcements arrived to sway the balance. It was proper preparation. Napoleon had inspired his troops such that they would maintain good discipline under adversity, had already identified the battlefield as strategically important, and ensured his outnumbered armies were close enough to support each other. I once heard the Hall of Fame football coach Bill Parcells remark that teams don't get lucky. Rather, what people think of as luck is the result when proper preparation meets opportunity. The 1800 Italian campaign that ended at Marengo allowed Napoleon to throw out the Austrians in just a month, whereas in 1796, it took almost a year. Napoleon did not fight another battle for five years. The time in between is mostly a story about politics, in which historians argue about Napoleon's connection with the Revolution of 1789. If this sort of question interests you, again, I'd recommend Robert's biography as he presents an interesting case. It's not easy to sort out because if Napoleon censored and suppressed his domestic opponents, which he did do, the revolution in its heyday literally guillotined tens of thousands of people for expressing political opinions. It was perhaps natural that Napoleon, who championed and codified the concept of meritocracy, was convinced that France's fortunes were tied to himself, and thus was crowned Emperor of the French. It was a title more honest than the sham people's democracies of the 20th century. The French people wanted an end to the chaos of the revolution, marveled at the little corporal who became greater than those born to wear crowns, and as the esteemed historian Eric Hobsbawm pointed out, most Frenchmen were almost certainly better off at 1815 than they had been in 1800. Napoleon was a despot who kept the most efficient parts of the revolution and discarded the least. In short, most of France was better off for his rule and approved of it. But that's a story for another podcast. Napoleon's return to the battlefield came in the 1805 campaign against Austria. It was the one that culminated at Austerlitz, which was his piece de resistance, his masterpiece. You might be wondering how and why Napoleon kept defeating the Austrians and forcing them to make peace, yet had to keep on fighting them. There is rarely a straightforward answer in history. This was one case. The French revolutionary state had come to dominate the entire European coast opposite of Great Britain, which was a situation London would never accept. So the British continually funded other European monarchies to join in the anti-French coalitions, which they were inclined to join because they feared revolution as much as French military power. By 1805, the British, the Austrians, and Russians were at war and presented Napoleon with a dilemma he faced almost his entire military career. 
he needed to defeat multiple enemies who together on paper were stronger than he was. Here is one anecdote that I feel best captures Napoleon's military philosophy. One officer tasked to defend the position sought to impress the emperor by neatly lining up all of his troops in a single file that evenly covered the entire front. Napoleon looked at the disposition and remarked, Oh, it's very beautiful. Is your plan to prevent smuggling? Since time immemorial, the most common factor between military victory and defeat has been the concentration of force. That is, being stronger at the most decisive place and time. If you spread out your forces and try to be strong everywhere, you are strong nowhere. What Napoleon had to do with his outnumbered forces was to ensure that whenever and wherever they did fight, Napoleon would bring his troops together so that he would be stronger. Enter the core system. What the French did was divide its armies into separate autonomous units. In essence, miniature armies with their own organic cavalry, reconnaissance, and artillery forces that they were able and expected to function on their own. The idea was to ensure that these corps were never more than one day's march from each other. This meant that provided each corps were provisioned enough to fight one day alone, if one of them became engaged, it would have enough supplies, ammunition, and manpower to hold out long enough that the rest of the corps would arrive on the scene. When the system worked properly, it allowed the French armies to march separately and fight together, that is, quickly support each other and provide the crucial concentration of force much faster than their enemies. It would feature in most of Napoleon's victories, whereas in his defeats, he did not use it properly. It heralded the birth of modern warfare and eventually was used by all European armies, and the concept still exists to this day. The core system stands as Napoleon's contribution to the art of war. Historian David Chandler summarized its importance as follows. Napoleon's insistence on speed and mobility was a basic feature of the emperor's campaigns from beginning to end, and was the feature of his warfare that most confused and unsettled the majority of his opponents, brought up in a tradition that taught a more leisurely type of warfare. Napoleon would need that speed because he faced an enemy coalition whose armies outnumbered him almost two to one. But if he moved fast enough, he could strike the Austrians before the Russians arrived. And so, Napoleon marched 200,000 men 500 miles in 40 days, an unprecedented feat, and descended upon the rear of one Austrian army at Ulm, forcing it to surrender without serious resistance. As Napoleon wrote, I have destroyed the Austrian army by simply marching. That was true. It wasn't hyperbole. It was a testament to the potential of the core system and one of history's great examples of defeating an enemy by maneuver rather than fighting. Although that victory had allowed the French to capture Vienna, the Austrians did not surrender. This is an important point that I will go into detail during part two of this episode. For now, let's just concentrate on 1805 in this campaign. 
The remaining Austrian forces combined with their approaching Russian allies meant they still outnumbered Napoleon. It was December. It was cold. The French were 1,000 miles away from Paris and supplies were dwindling. Napoleon was in a bad position. Part of understanding Napoleon was he believed in audacity. He would say in a future campaign, if the art of war was nothing but the art of avoiding risks, glory would become the prey of mediocre minds. I have made all the calculations. Fate will do the rest. He was not wrong. In battle, confidence beats caution every time. So he invited his careful enemy to attack by making himself look weak at a place near the village of Austerlitz by abandoning a commanding position and exposing a weak flank. It was too tempting of a target. The Allies' logic was correct. They should deploy a large force to attack an apparent weakness. But in doing so, they fatally weakened their center position, which Napoleon had expected. The core system meant he could count on the arrival of his best marshal, Davu, to reinforce his exposed flank. He also used the morning fog to hide two experienced divisions that were to attack the enemy's weakened center once battle was joined. There's an old saying by the great Prussian commander Helmuth von Molke, no plan survives contact with the enemy. Napoleon's at Austerlitz came about as close as it gets. The Allies had overcommitted to attack what they thought was a weak flank, and in the process their center was smashed by the French who then rolled up the flanks of the enemy, and it was GG, game over. The coalition suffered some 36,000 casualties, while the French figure was only 9,000. It was a decisive victory that allowed Napoleon to defeat the third coalition that had been arrayed against France. There would be a fourth coalition, and a fifth, and a sixth, and a seventh. As there is so much to Napoleon's story and insights from Roberts's book, let's not rush through anything or have a super long episode. So I'm going to go old school and do what was a feature of television shows back in the day. The to-be-continued cliffhanger and keep audiences waiting in bated breath for a week until the conclusion. December 1805 after Austerlitz, which was his crowning achievement, represented Napoleon at his peak so it seems like the natural place to divide the episodes. It is true that in the next two years, 1806 and 1807, would see Napoleon once again win and conclude a dramatic campaign. Acknowledging that, historically, I'd argue events had already been set in motion that would lead to his ultimate defeat and show the limitations of genius. So, let's end the episode the way they did on television shows back in the 1980s. Why did Napoleon's downfall begin after a victory? Why was his genius so effective in Italy, but not Waterloo? Tune in next week for the exciting conclusion.